The works to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Isaiah in chapter 52, reading again the first three verses. The first three verses in the 52nd chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. I want particularly to deal with the message of that third verse. For thus saith the Lord, Ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. Now I am calling attention to this because it is one of these great, grand and typical statements of the gospel. This prophet Isaiah is generally regarded as the uh, evangelical prophet. That isn't confined to him by any means. But it's a long book that he wrote, and it has many chapters, and the result is that he states it perhaps more frequently than the others, and he's particularly uh, characterized by the way in which he puts it in a pictorial manner. He presents this great message of salvation. That, of course is the theme of the entire Bible. That is the message of the Bible. It is the record of God's way of salvation. What God has planned and proposed and is putting into practice with regard to the human condition as the result of the fall and sin. Now, here we get it, therefore, in one verse, summarized for us in a very interesting and remarkable manner. I want to show you that all the great characteristics of the gospel are to be found here in this one great statement. Now, there was never a greater need of this statement of the gospel than there is at the present time, with so much passing as gospel that is no gospel. There's nothing new in that even. That was happening even in the time of the Apostle Paul. He talks about another gospel which is not a gospel, and it's still the same today. Now, I feel, as I read a thing like this, for instance, that the ultimate charge to bring against these false gospels is not so much, and not only that they're wrong, but that they rob the true gospel of all its glory, its wonder, and its amazement. They reduce the gospel to something small. Fancy, people regarding as a gospel just an appeal to men and women to live a better life. As if that were the gospel. Where's the glory? Where's the wonder? Where's the amazement? There is none at all. But that often passes as gospel. People just think that the Christian is a good man and tries to live a good life. And Christian preaching means exhortations to people to live a better life. Or all the others who think the gospel is just this perpetual protest against this, that, and the other. Now, I say they're not only wrong. The ultimate trouble with them is that is that they're so small. There's no glory about them. There's no thrill. There's no wonder. 
and there is no amazement. But you see, when you come to the real gospel, you find how different it is. Here's the position. The prophet Isaiah had been given to see the captivity that was coming to the children of Israel. He warns them. He knows they won't listen. He knows that they will be carried to the captivity of Babylon. And there they will suffer. They'll be slaves. They'll be servants. They'll have lost all their liberty and all the joys of living. They'll be strangers in a strange land and in this condition of utter bondage, captivity and slavery. They'll be completely helpless. They'll have no arms. It'll be impossible for them to work up some kind of rebellion and get themselves at liberty again. No, it's, it'll be a condition of complete and absolute hopelessness. But then, you see, it had been revealed to him by God that they were going to be delivered out of it. And it was going to happen suddenly. And this is how it comes, the prophet tells us. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth, thy watchman shall lift up the voice. And with the voice together shall they sing. Now, you see the picture. It's a picture that he employs there of a beleaguered city. Surrounded again and unable to do anything at all to save themselves. They've exhausted everything. Their food and water supplies are gradually diminishing. And they can see the end coming. But their only hope lies in the fact that something or somebody may do something from the outside. They're always keeping their eye therefore on the mountains surrounding their city, wondering whether it's still not too late. And here they are, almost at their wits' ends, when suddenly somebody sees a messenger appearing in a pass on the mountain top, a messenger with a message of hope and of salvation and of deliverance. Someone else has organized a way of delivering them and setting them free. And here they are, the beleaguered people, they see this man coming, oh, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. That is how the message of God's great salvation always truly comes. Now, here it is, I say, and you see that there are certain great characteristics which are always true about this gospel and the way in which it comes. Now, before we go any further, let me ask you a question. Has the Christian message come to you like that? Has it come to you? Has it a message of deliverance comes to a beleaguered city? Has it ever come to you like that? i tell you why I'm asking my question. You know, if the gospel message, if this message of this book, if what you regard as Christianity hasn't come to you in that way, well then, my dear friend, I take leave to ask the question as to whether you really have ever heard it or not. That's the message of the Bible. Now that's why I say, you see, it contrasts so obviously and evidently with so much that passes as gospel at the present time. An exhortation is not a message of good news. But this is always a great message of good news. It's a proclamation. Listen, here they are, absolutely helpless, hopeless in captivity, and they become apathetic. The thing is so hopeless, they're half asleep, they're stunned. 
And suddenly they're aroused by a message which comes saying, Awake, awake, put on thy strength. O Zion, put on thy beautiful garments. That's the gospel. That's the message of the Bible. It is always something that comes as a great announcement and proclamation to us. This is, this is the first and one of the most essential characteristics of the gospel. And I say again that unless it's come to us as some great proclamation like this, the question is, have we ever really heard it? And then you see it's a message from God. Thus saith the law. It isn't something worked out by men. It isn't men's theories and ideas. It's a message that comes down from God. It's coming over the mountaintops unexpectedly. Nothing that we've produced, it's entirely from his side. Thus saith the Lord. It's God breaking in, giving us this great good news. Now here you see, we are dealing then with what is the essential gospel. And you see how all this is being denied at the present time. Men are even deciding what God is like. They not only decide what his message ought to be, they decide about God himself. And the whole emphasis today is upon man and man's thinking and man's discovery and man's knowledge and man's 20th century. It's all from us. And it changes from day to day almost and from age to age. But that's a blank contradiction of this message. Thus saith the Lord. And the Lord is the Lord. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the unchanging and the unchangeable God. It's not dependent upon men at all, as I'm going to show you. It comes altogether and entirely from him breaking in upon us. And it comes unexpectedly. It comes surprisingly. It's a message calling us to awake, to arise, to shake off the dust, to rise, loose yourself, sit down, put on your beautiful garments. It's a message of hope. It's a promise of deliverance. It is a promise of joy that passes human comprehension. Well now, that I say, we are told here on the very surface of this passage, is always the great characteristic of the gospel. And you know, as I hear these men, these false gospelers, reducing this glorious gospel to just a number of human thoughts and ideas and practices, something political mainly. I say the trouble is not so much that they're wrong as that they're reducing the glory of the gospel to something small and petty and narrow and human. What a tragedy it is. My friend, let me ask again this simple question. Has the gospel come to you as the greatest surprise of your life? Has it caused you to be filled with amazement and astonishment? Has it burst in upon you in the way that is described here? Very well, there is its general characteristic, but what is its message? Well now, in this third verse, the message is divided into just two sections, and I just want to hold them before you. Here are the two things that the Bible keeps on telling us. The first is this, that man is a fool. And the second thing is, that salvation is altogether and entirely of God and of his free grace. 
Thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught, for nothing. And you shall be redeemed without money. Well, there it is. That's a summary, I say, of the message of the whole Bible. First, that man is a fool. That man has brought all his troubles upon himself. This is a great thing emphasized by the Bible everywhere. The sinner, the man who disobeys God and lives his own life, is called many things in the Bible, and there are many aspects of his sinfulness and his disobedience and rebellion. But the ultimate thing that the Bible always says about a man who's not a Christian, a man who's not religious, is that he is simply a fool. A fool. And then, and largely because of that, it emphasizes this other great aspect, that obviously his salvation doesn't come from him in any shape or form. It is altogether and entirely from God. Now, let, let me show you this. Let me work this out with you. This unutterable folly of men, it appears in every department, practically, of his existence. Let me start like this. Man's folly is the only explanation of his state and condition. All right, we must start with men as he is. We must start with our world as it is tonight. And the first question, obviously, therefore, that we must face is this. How is it that man has ever become what he is? Now, you've got to start with that. We were dealing last Sunday night with the question of priorities. I'm back onto it again, you see. I'm simply saying now in another form that the first thing you have to do when you're dealing with a sick patient is to diagnose the trouble. Obviously, common sense. How can you treat unless you know the cause of the trouble? You must be aware of the condition. You've got to make a diagnosis. And the Bible always does that. This is always the starting point in the Bible. The Bible is not just a book to tell you, do this and that and you'll be all right. The Bible, first of all, tells you that you must know and realize why you are as you are. And obviously this is common sense. This must come first. If you want that put in a more doctrinal theological form, you put it like this. The law always comes before the gospel. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That's it. You get your Old Testament, the diagnosis, the law, the exposure of the ill, preparatory for the treatment that is given in all its fullness and all sufficiency in the New Testament gospel concerning the Son of God. Now, we've got to take these two things, you know. And you see, the prophet puts it like that. He doesn't merely announce that these people are going to be set free. He tells them first and foremost as to why they've ever got into captivity. You have sold yourselves for nothing. We must be clear about the cause of men's ills and troubles. Why is this so essential? Well, I, I can tell you, there's no difficulty about it. If a man doesn't accept the biblical diagnosis as to the cause of his troubles, he will never accept its proper treatment. Never. And that is why people today are not interested in the gospel. They've never seen any need of it. Not realizing their own state and condition, they're not prepared to listen to the gospel. It's no use saying to a man, come to Christ or come to Jesus, if he doesn't see any need of doing so. If he's confident that he can put himself and his world right 
Well, of course, he regards this uh, gospel as completely irrelevant, that it's got nothing at all to say. And that is what the masses are doing. They're doing that because they're not aware of the cause of their troubles. Why is the world as it is tonight? Why individually are we as we are by nature? What is the trouble with men? What's gone wrong with men? What's the trouble with the world? What's gone wrong with the world? Now then, here is the answer. Man, says the Bible, is a fool. And he's in difficulties and trouble simply because he's a fool. Well, what has he done? Well, as a fool, this is what he's done. He sold his birthright. You have sold yourself. Now, this is a tremendously important point. The trouble with men is not merely that he is suffering from certain defects. All people are prepared to grant that. You know, the typical statement of the non-Christian men of the world. He said, of course, I don't say that of a hundred percent saint. Exactly. He's prepared to admit a certain number of defects. But that means, of course, that fundamentally he's all right and he's sound. He's just got an occasional defect all there. It's the whole point and argument, isn't it, of the theory of evolution. That man isn't totally wrong, but he's developing. Not yet perfect, but on the way up. He's got it in him. But you see, the Bible denies that completely. The trouble with men is not merely that he has certain defects. Neither is it the trouble with men that he is guilty of certain sins. People are again prepared to grant that. People are ready to say, well, I must admit, I, I do this thing which is wrong. I do that sometimes. Uh, I fall into sin. I make mistakes. I go astray here and there. They'll always grant you that. But you see, this statement goes well beyond that. And the whole of the Bible goes well beyond that. Man's trouble is much worse than that. It isn't so much that he lacks this or that or is imperfect. The trouble with men, we are told, is that he has sold himself. He has sold his own soul. He has bartered away the most precious thing belonging to him. He has sold his manhood. He has sold his very self. What do I mean by all this? Well, let me show you. Man is in his present trouble because he didn't realize the privilege of what he was at the beginning. Now, here's the whole thing. All the many problems in the world tonight really come back to this one problem. What is man? You see, before you can decide how man is to live, you must know what man is. If man is just an animal, well, very well, then commit as much adultery as you like and fornication and thieve and rob and all the rest of it. If man is only an animal, let him behave as an animal and there's nothing wrong. But the question is, is man only an animal? You see, you must start with this first great question. And this is where the whole of our troubles uh, come from. They all derived from this initial error. Man was made in the image of God. Now this is the statement, this is the teaching, this is the very basis of the whole Christian position, that man is not an evolved creature. Man is a special creation of God. God said, let us make men in our own image. And he did so. 
He put something of himself into men. He gave him reason and understanding. He gave him this capacity of self-analysis. He gave him something that enables him to commune with God and to have fellowship with God. God made man as a companion for himself. He made him righteous. He made him upright. He made him a lover of holiness and of truth. That is man in his original creation. He's got the image and likeness of God upon him. That is how man began. That is how man was made. God gave man this great gift of the soul and of original right, righteousness, this likeness to God himself. And he made him an heir of eternity. He was meant, I say, for a life of fellowship and of communion with God. God gave man that great gift. That's the original endowment. But what happened? What happened was, of course, that men despised that. He didn't think that this was as wonderful as it seemed to be. He wasn't satisfied with it. He wanted something different, which he regarded as something better. So men, by a deliberate act, forfeited all that, sold all that, gave all that away. And the result is that all our troubles have come out of it. Now, that was the story at the very beginning. You see, the Bible puts that at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. And it goes on repeating it right away through. And never, of course, was it clearer than it is tonight. Look at this modern world of ours. Look at the people of this country outside the Christian church. Now, not only do they deny the gospel, but you see, they deny the truth about men. This is the position we are confronted by. But when you tell the modern man the kind of thing I'm saying now, he laughs it, he ridicules it. Why? Well, he doesn't believe that. What does he believe then? Well, he believes that man is only an animal. He deliberately sells, throws overboard this whole idea that man is made in the image and likeness of God. He says, nonsense. Man is, after all, only an animal. He's like the other animals. His cerebrum has developed a little bit more, perhaps. He's able to make calculations, but it's only that he's a little more. So man's a reasoning animal. They object to talk about the soul. Somebody was reminding me this morning how she'd been taught in her training that there was no such organ as the soul. Modern men, you see, deliberately denies the soul. Man is just a creature. He's just an animal. And they regard him in a purely materialistic manner. They are deliberately selling the whole notion of soul and of righteousness and of likeness to God. Modern man is boasting that he's an animal and he wants to be allowed to live like an animal. He sold himself. The most precious thing in men is the very thing that they're ridiculing and denying completely. They have sold themselves. But wait a minute, it isn't the end of men's folly. And you do see the folly, don't you, my friend? Fancy men objecting to the fact that he should be told that he was meant to be altogether above the creature and above the animal. That he was meant to be like God and meant to be a companion of God. Fancy men ridiculing all that and boasting of the fact that he's but an animal. Isn't this sheer folly? But listen, he's not only sold himself, he sold himself for nothing. You have sold yourselves for naught. And here, of course, we see the essential and unutterable folly of men. 
Man thinks he's clever. Man thinks he knows what's good and best for himself. He thinks he's doing well for himself. He thinks he's making a thoroughly good bargain. Man thinks that by rejecting God and the Lord Jesus Christ and this Christian way of life, that he's doing a good thing for himself, I say. We all know something about this, don't we? Man will persist in thinking that by turning his back upon God, he's going to gain something. He's always convinced that he is going to gain and that he'll have some great increase. Religion, God are regarded as something to stand between men and his own real attainment and possibility. Man, by throwing off God and religion, is going to gain a tremendous universe for himself. And that's why they reject the teaching of the Bible. But here, you see, we are told that he has sold himself for nothing. Come, let's examine this. Is it true? Is it a right statement? Would you prefer it perhaps in the language of the Apostle Paul? He puts it like this. He puts a great question to the members of the church at Rome. How would you answer this question? What fruit had he then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. When we were the servants of sin, he says, you were free from righteousness. What does the sinful life really give us? Now, here's the question I think the modern man needs to face. He shakes off religion. The man of the world, the man who's up to date, he understands, he knows what's best for himself, every man's out for himself, and he's doing what's best for himself. Now, I think it's about time we face this question. What does man really gain for himself by rejecting this message? Well, let's put the question in another form, the form our blessed Lord himself put it. What shall it profit a man? Though he gained the whole world and lose his own soul. What is it? Examine that question. What shall it profit? It is a question of profit and loss. All right, man's always out for a bargain. He thinks he knows. He's doing well for himself. Very well, I say, produce the ledger. Let's have a look at it. What do you really get? What do you really gain? What does the life of this world really give to a man's mind. Think of the great world tonight that isn't doing what you and I are doing now. Think of the people who are glued to the television set or listening to the radio or drinking in public houses or doing other things. You know, the people who think that they're clever by not being Christian and are rather sorry for us. They are really getting life. They are really living. Well, now, I'm just asking, what are they getting for their minds this evening. Are they facing these great fundamental questions? Or the people who spend their day reading the Sunday newspapers, going through all the things that happen in the law courts, or reading the clever people putting up theories, criticizing one another, playing to one another's hands. Well, what's the profit? What's the gain? Or the people who live on the gossip, court circular, what's happening in certain circles? Where is where's the edification for the mind? How does all that help you really to live 
What does that really tell you about yourself and about your being and about your destiny? Come, my friends, it's all very well to talk about sophistication and being clever and up-to-date and dismissing this as sob stuff. I'll ask a question. I've often asked it from this pulpit. Do you think that the majority of people outside the church tonight who are not interested in Christianity are exercising their minds and brains and understandings as much as I'm asking you to do at this present moment? That's the question. No, no, it's entertainment. It isn't facing the problem. The world is living on entertainment. It's nothing ultimately to give to the mind. They've sold themselves. What have they got? They've got nothing. They don't understand men. They don't understand what's happening in the world. They're quite bewildered and baffled. The Christian isn't, but they are. They don't understand. They followed the false prophets, the people who said the League of Nations was going to put an end to war, and the people who said that education was going to put the world right. They followed them. But you see, it hasn't put the world right. They've thrown over the gospel, sold the soul, and they've got nothing. They don't understand. They're utterly bewildered and baffled and are falling back upon drugs in various shapes and forms. Well, what is that life to give to the heart? Does the heart really get satisfaction? Does the world really know what love means? Well, keep your eye on what happens in the divorce courts. Look at these experts in love, supposedly, these film stars, and see what happens to them. Is their heart satisfaction? You can spit on the Ten Commandments and tear them up. Do you find heart satisfaction? It doesn't seem to last very long, does it? Does all that the world has got to offer you tonight really give you satisfaction in your heart? Having thrown away your soul, having sold it, what have you got left? What have you got in return? And still more when you come to the realm of the Spirit. What has the world and all that it is tonight got to give you when you think of yourself in the realm of Spirit? In the, when you think of death and what may be beyond it, it's got nothing to give you. It's got nothing to say to you. You see, this other life has got nothing to give the mind, nothing to give the heart, nothing to give the Spirit. It has no insight. It has no lasting pleasure. The world is unhappy. The world is miserable. That's why it's drinking so much. That's why it's drugging so much. That's why there's a pleasure mania. The world and its people are unhappy. It doesn't get satisfaction. And it has no consolation. It's got nothing to fall back upon. There is nothing that I know of that is so terrible as to have to try to say a word to people when they're visited by death, bereavement, and sorrow who do not believe this gospel. There's nothing to say to them. Nothing at all. What they lived for has come to an end. Only this last week, a man was telling me about his own brother. He said, you know, he's lost his wife. I hadn't heard that. I knew the man. He's lost his wife. And he said, he said, he doesn't know where he is. He doesn't know what to do. He said he was telling me himself, he said the other day, that he could see now, too late, that he and his wife had made a terrible mistake in life. How, I said. Well, he said, you know, 
Once he left home, he turned his back on the church and on religion, and he and his wife, they just lived for themselves. Now, the man he was talking about, his brother, was not an immoral man. He was a good-living man, as the world would have it. But you see, he said he and his wife, they just lived for one another. They hadn't even made many friends. They were just living for one another. The wife dies. He's left bereft. No consolation. No comfort. Nothing whatsoever to fall back upon. No reserve. And that is the life of the world without God. It keeps you going and you have to keep going. The moment you stop, it stops. There's nothing. It's a kind of iridescent bubble. And in the end, you've got nothing at all but vapor and air. And there's no hope to cheer the two. There's no understanding of death. There's no knowledge of what lies beyond it. I'm asking you in all seriousness to consider this question. This is the verdict of God. You have sold yourselves for nothing. Nothing. You've got nothing. And you'll find yourself on your deathbed and you'll have literally nothing at all. You won't have your bank balance. You can't take it through death. You won't have your house, your motor car, your relatives, your friends, your drink, your gambling, your television. You'll have absolutely nothing. And you'll realize the truth of the statement. Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. What has the world to give you? It has nothing. Man, says the Bible, is a fool. He always thinks he's making a wonderful bargain when he sells his soul. But he's always like the prodigal son. He thought he was doing a very clever thing when he left home. Very much better than that stick-in-the-mud brother of his who stayed at home. Give me the share of my goods, he says to his father, and off he goes with his pockets full of money. Now he's going to live. He knows how to face life. Here's a man who's really going to have a thoroughly good bargain. Farewell to all that nonsense. He's going to live in his own way. But you haven't gone far in the story of the prodigal son before you come across this illuminating phrase, no man gave unto him. He'd spent all his money and his friends had helped him to do it. You'll have friends, you know, while you're pouring out money. You pay for the drinks, you won't lack companions. But when the money is gone, they'll all disappear. They'll attach themselves to somebody else. That's men without God. That's men without a soul. That's men denying his original righteousness. No man gave unto him. There began to be a famine in that country. And all the food had ended. And he finds himself in the field with the swine and the husks that the swine were eating. And no man gave unto him. What's he got? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. He sold himself. His birthright, his family, his prospects. He sold it all. And he's got nothing. Isn't man a fool? This is what the Bible says. But wait a minute, we haven't finished. Man not only sells himself and his soul, he not only does so for nothing, the result of his doing so is that he becomes a slave. You have sold yourself. And when you sell yourself, it means that you are a slave. A man who sells himself is a slave. You can sell your house, but you're not a slave. You can sell various goods, you still are not a slave. But if you sell yourself... And that's why I'm emphasizing this. You are nothing but a slave. That's why the apostle says, I am carnal, sold under sin. He's describing a man who is not a Christian. 
is describing a man who has sold himself. I am carnal, sold under sin. You see the folly of men? He regarded life with God as slavery. That's why people turn their backs upon God. There it is, I say, go back to the Garden of Eden and you'll see the whole thing. God makes the men in his own image and likeness. There they are, men and women, companions of God, enjoying paradise, not having to sweat and work and labor to keep themselves going, just picking the fruit, paradise. But you see, the devil comes along and he says, look here. Are you going on like this? Are you going to allow God to take advantage of you in this way? You know, he said, God's keeping you down. God is really insulting you. He tells you not to eat the fruit of that tree because he knows very well that the moment you do so, your eyes will be opened and you will become as God. God, he says, is not dealing fairly with you. You ought to get your freedom. You're being hemmed in. God's tying you down. Why don't you assert yourself? Why don't you become free? Turn against him. And they listen to him. They thought that by turning their backs upon God and disobeying him, they'd achieve freedom. And that's what mankind has been doing ever since. This thought of God, they say, holding your doubts. And these Ten Commandments and this moral law, always saying no to this and no to that and do this and that. It's a sheer slavery. And the psychologists, at least they were popular ones, Freudians, they're not so popular now. They're beginning to see through him at last. It's taken them a terrible long time, but they're beginning to see through it. What a lie it is. What a sham. What a fraud it has all been. But that was the teaching, you see, that religion is a slavery. These supposed gods who hold you down. You must break loose. You must break free. You must assert yourself. You must express your personality. Religion is an incubus. Something holding us down in slavery. Shake it off. That's what men did at the beginning. He's been doing it ever since. And he thought he was going to set himself at liberty. But what's happened? He has become the slave of the devil. Men in listening to the devil was selling himself to the devil. And men has become a slave of the devil and of the world and of sin. And that's the whole tragedy of the world tonight. That this foolish world is boasting about its rebellion against God and thinks it's free. And it's in unutterable slavery to the God of this world. You were the quickened, says Paul to the Ephesians. You were the quickened that were dead in trespasses and sins. You, he said, who walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Our Lord says, the strong man armed keepeth his goods in peace. That's mankind. The tragedy of the world tonight, that man is a slave, slave of his own world, slave of the devil, slave of sin. Examine yourself. Free will. Have you got free will? Of course you haven't. And you know you haven't. Your life is governed by the world. It's governed by fashion. It's governed by the thing to do. It's governed by what other people say. Mass circulation of the newspapers. And it's all repeated and propaganda. Men think they're free. They're not. They've never been so much the slaves of the machine and of the propaganda machine. No, no, there's no liberty. Men can't serve God when he wants to. Try to. 
You try living the righteous life and you'll soon find how much of a slave you are. You take your New Year's resolutions. Why don't you keep them? The answer is because you can't. You're a slave. We are slaves to the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We are the slaves of lusts and passions. We are the slave of evil tempers, emulation, jealousy, envy, malice, spite, ambition. These are the things that are governing men. Hence the turmoil, hence the quarreling, hence the fighting, hence the misery, hence the drunkenness, hence the unhappiness, hence the moral social problem. Men, a slave, sold under sin. Oh, let's turn to it again. This classic statement of the whole thing. Isn't this true of you and of your experience? We know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. In other words, he says, the very thing that I do, I know I shouldn't do it. I know it's wrong, and yet I do it. But that which I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. In other words, he says, I'm a slave to something in me that's stronger than myself. Exactly. He then puts it quite explicitly. I find a law then that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. And that's true of every one of us by nature. Isn't that one of the greatest causes of misery in life? You've decided to be better and to live a better and a purer life and you break it all in a second. You take your resolutions and your vows. A subtle temptation comes and you've gone. You're a mass of contradictions. There's a law in your members dragging you down. We're all slaves, my friends. If we were not, nobody would be unhappy. But we can't be happy. We're letting ourselves down. We're contradicting ourselves. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's what we've all said in some shape or form. That's a confession of slavery. The way of the transgressor is hard. Man sells himself, he sells himself for nothing, and he's made himself a slave. And the life without God is a life of slavery, and it's an unhappy one, it's a miserable one. And it leaves you finally without any hope whatsoever in the world. Now then, that's the first great statement here. You have sold yourselves for nothing. Thank God that there's a second half to this great statement. Here it is. There's only one way whereby men can be saved. Thank God he can be saved. But there's only one way. And if you want to see a still greater manifestation of the utter folly of men in sin, you'll see it here. That man objects to the second half of this verse quite as much as he does to the first half. Now, you would have thought that any reasonable man finding himself in trouble and misery and unhappiness and his world the same, when he hears a great announcement and proclamation, he would have said, thank God, this is just... They don't, they object to it. The idea that you are saved by the cross of Christ, the Son of God, it's regarded as insulting, it's dismissed. You see, man is an utter fool. He doesn't know himself and the value of his soul. He sells it for nothing and makes himself a slave. And when he's offered liberty, he rejects it, feels it's insulting him. 
What can you say about him except that he is just an utter fool? But my friends, there is a way of salvation and there's only one. It is God's way of salvation. Thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for naught and you shall be redeemed without money. He does it all. It is all of the free grace of God. Here we are in the beleaguered city. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that publisheth peace. The message has come. And it's come into this world by none other than the very Son of God himself. Look at him coming. Are his feet not beautiful to you tonight? Listen to him. I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what he's saying to us poor, miserable slaves, slaves of the world and the flesh and the devil. It is all of God. You have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Why? Well, I can answer the question quite simply. Why must the men be redeemed in God's way without anything at all? The answer is, of course, that man has got nothing to pay. He's made such a hopeless bargain, he's penniless. He sold himself for nothing. Well, a man who's got nothing, he can't pay. So, you see, a man can make no contribution to salvation because he's penniless, he's bankrupt. He's a slave. His master has taken all his goods and possessions. He leaves him with literally nothing at all. This is the great message of the Bible. Come ye buy without money, without price. Oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. Come buy without money, without price. Free gift of God. It must be that, mustn't it? Because man has got nothing to pay. But wait a minute, says somebody. You know, I've been trying to live a good life. I claim I'm a moral man. I claim that I've been doing good to others. All right, my friend, bring out your list. I notice that you keep a very careful account of all you do. You never seem to forget any good that you do with your right hand, do you? All right, but you've got it all down in the ledger. All the good you've ever done. Now then, I come and I challenge you. Present it to the bar of heaven. Present it to the eternal court. And the verdict has already been given. All your righteousness is but as filthy rags. Or let the Apostle Paul say it. Here was a man who believed that kind of thing until he met the Son of God. But when he met the Son of God, this is what he said, all this which I counted gain, I now count as but loss. Yeah, and I count all things but loss. What for? Well, for this excellency of the righteousness of God which is in Christ Jesus. He says, you know, since I've seen that, I count all my own righteousness which is after the law as dung and refuse. It's valueless. It's no good at all. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He's got nothing to give. Your righteousness is useless. Under the examination of God, it is worse than useless, it is vile, it is pretense, it's shoddy, it's tinsel, it's refuse, it's dung, it's brushed out of existence. That's why it is true to say you shall be redeemed without money, and it's the most wonderful thing you can ever be told. It's a gospel, you see, for anybody. My gospel tonight comes to anybody in this great city of London. 
There may be somebody listening to me in this congregation who has sinned to the very jaws of hell. You've sold your soul, you've sold your character, you've sold your morality and chastity, you've sold everything that is of value. You've got nothing. All right, my friend, you have as much right here as anybody else. You have sold yourself for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. You've got nothing. Nobody else has anything. We all are paupers. We all have nothing at all. That's one reason why we shall be redeemed without money, because we haven't got any. But there's a second reason. And if this doesn't move you and ravish your hearts, my dear friends, you're not Christians and you know nothing about it. Why shall we be redeemed without money? Well, the answer is because it's already been paid for us by another. And it has been done by the Son of God. You have been redeemed, says Peter, in his first epistle, first chapter, verse 18, not with gold or silver or such things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the price. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. And the price paid was the life of the Son of God. His broken body, his shed blood. He gave himself. You've sold yourself for nothing. He's given himself freely for you. He's given his life, his all, that you and I might be redeemed. He's paid the price. He's ransomed us. He's bought us out of our awful predicament. By grace are he saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. The Son of God, says Paul, who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's what he's done. That's the message. Thus saith the Lord, you have sold yourselves for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. My friends, this is the gospel message. You can come just as you are. Nothing is asked of you because you've got nothing to give. You come just as you are, in your sins, in your failure, in your hopelessness, in your lack of understanding. You come exactly as you are, and where you are, you believe, and immediately you are forgiven, and you are reconciled to God. That is called justification by faith only. Let not conscience make you linger, or a fitness fondly dream, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you. It is the Spirit's rising beam. That's the proclamation that God makes to this world tonight. This is Christianity. Not an exhortation to us to save ourselves. Not an exhortation political, social to us and to the people in South Africa and other parts of the world. Not this perpetual political, social message. No, no. God speaking to us individually and telling us that we can be set free, ransomed, redeemed, that he so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into it and that he has paid the price. He gave himself, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the gospel that men rejects. Oh, what a fool he is. He says, I must surely be doing something about it. The pauper, the slave, the man in the captivity. What can you do? You can do nothing. Try and you'll find you can't. And here is the free offer of God's full and free salvation. But for me to close, look at the result of the deliverance. 
And here again men shows his unutterable folly. Look at the salvation that he refuses. What is it? Well, listen, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings and that publisheth peace. Peace, my dear friend. Peace in your conscience. Peace with God. The knowledge that your sins are forgiven. That you need not fear death. You needn't fear the grave. You needn't fear the bar of final judgment. Peace with God. You remember how the apostle puts it again at the beginning of Romans 5. Being therefore justified by faith, we have peace with God. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. We have passed from judgment into life. Here's a messenger announcing peace. Christ dying upon the cross hath made peace. Peace between man and God. The God who is against you is for you. And you no longer are an enemy of God. Reconciliation. Peace. Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What else? Well, listen to him. Here he tells us, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. Beautiful garments. We've all been living in rags, haven't we? Moral rags, spiritual rags, filthy rags. Bespattered and besmirched by the filth and the mire and the evil of this world. Oh, not only are we ugly, but our clothing, how terrible. But here we are told to rise and to put on these beautiful garments they provided for us. We can't buy them because we've got no money, but the robe is provided. That's why old Count Zinzendorf wrote that hymn translated by John Wesley, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress, midst flaming worlds, in this arrayed, a garment to fit me for heaven, a beautiful robe. Spotless, seamless, the righteousness of Jesus Christ covering me and all my unworthiness and foulness. Beautiful garments. That's what's offered. What else? Well, you see, he says, shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. The poor slave got manacles on him, got chains and here he is tied down by them from the neck downwards. The slavery of sin, the slavery to the world, the flesh, the devil. The thing that defeats us, the captivity that Paul talks about. Here we are and we can't set ourselves free. Suddenly a voice comes, awake, awake, put on thy strength. Rise up, shake thyself, stand up. Loose yourself from the bands of the neck, O captive daughter. And you rise and you find that you're free. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. The strong man on keepeth his goods at peace, but when he cometh that is stronger than he, he robbeth him of all his armor wherein he trusted, and he sets his goods at liberty. The emancipation, the freedom, the liberty of the men in God, the glorious liberty of the children of God, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death, not only free from condemnation, but free from the power of evil and sin, from the dominion of Satan.
What else? Well, listen to him. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation. Oh, the good things that he offers. My dear friend, I'm very sorry for a man who isn't a Christian. Oh, what he's missing. The wealth of this book, the glory and wonder of this book, the teaching direct and indirect, the imagery, the arguments, the logic, the vista, the understanding, the explanation of history, the view into heaven, the good thing, the knowledge that you're a child of God, that your very hairs are all numbered, that nothing can happen to you apart from him, that you're safe in the arms of Jesus. These are some of the good things. Time fails me to mention them to you. And then think of this joy that he speaks about. That is why the feet of the publisher are so beautiful to this man. Break forth into joy. Sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed Israel. Do you really want to know what joy is? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Solid joys and lasting pleasure. None but Zion's children know. The joy of the people in the public house last night didn't leave a very good after effect this morning, did it? Solid joy. It isn't solid. It's artificial. It's produced. It's evanescent. The drink ends. The play ends. The film ends. The television shuts down. Life ends. And you've nothing but terror and alarm and frustration. That's not joy. It's misery. But here's a solid joy and a lasting pleasure. And none but Zion's children know it. Break forth into joy. And ultimately, the knowledge that my eternal future is safe and is secure. That saith and desire thy God reigneth. Oh, this is to me the final joy of this gospel. That however much appearances may be to the contrary at the present time, and they are, the world is an evil place tonight, isn't it? It's a terrible place. It's an ugly place. Not only nations warring against nation, not only watching one another and this arms race and rivalry, but look at it in individuals and persons and in groups in society. What an unhappy place it is. How miserable. And the devil is in control and God is dismissed. And man glories that he sold his soul and has become an animal. But here is my confidence and my assurance. Thy God reigneth. And he's there and he remains the same. Whatever men may do to him, he abideth always ever the same. The Lord reigneth and he will descend and destroy his enemies and he'll judge the world in righteousness and his Christ will come back and he'll set up his kingdom and he shall reign from shore to shore and from pole to pole. He will be universal Lord and those who believe in him will be sharing the reign with him and sharing the eternal joy. And you know, once you see this and believe it and begin to enjoy it, well then, for the rest of your life, you'll be amazed and astonished at it. You will say, indeed, with Charles Wesley, from the very bottom of your heart, and can it be? that I should gain an interest in the Saviour's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. 
And can it be that thou, my God, didst die for me? And he'll smile back at you and say, it's perfectly true. I loved you and gave myself for you. You are saved by grace, free and full.